1: Hello, my name is Michael Mancello. I've been here at New Books and Psychoanalysis for some time, sitting in the psychotherapeutic chair of The Intern, but today I will be taking the plunge and lying down on the psychoanalytic couch of the host. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'm eager to begin conducting interviews. Today we'll be speaking with Jean Petrucelli, author most recently of Body States, Interpersonal and Relational Perspectives on the Treatment of Eating Disorders. Jean is director and co-founder of the Eating Disorders, Compulsions, and Addiction Service at the William Allenson White Institute, where she's also a supervising analyst and a member of the teaching faculty. Additionally, she serves as adjunct clinical professor of psychology at New York University's postdoctoral program and is in private practice. Now, on to the interview. Jean, thank you for joining us today.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: What drew me to this book was its singularity. I was glad yet surprised to find a book about eating disorders and psychoanalysis. It doesn't seem as though eating disorders receive a lot of attention in psychoanalytic literature. Um, could you describe how you came to write this book and fill as it were, this lacuna? Um, and additionally, I was wondering uh, what was the clinical atmosphere around eating disorders like in 1995 when you founded the eating disorders, compulsions and addiction service um, and how has it changed?
0: Okay. Well, I mean, the analytic world has certainly changed a lot since the 90s. And I thought I would just give you a little background um, first about myself, because I started working with eating disorder patients in the early 80s. I was switching from another career in the creative arts. And I came to the William Ellison White Institute for Analytic Training in the late 80s but it wasn't until the creation of the service, which was then called the Eating Disorders um, and Substance Abuse Service, that was formed in 1995, with the late Dr. Catherine Stewart. She had a background in addictions, and then we thought we could begin to combine working with uh, eating disorders and addictions with an interpersonal, um, you know, theory and and work with this population. Um, we had, over the years, and, and when we first started, we, I had a wonderful steering committee. I'm very so much a part of this, um, Jacqueline Flora, with Paul Howard, Sue Collard, and Molly Bayser, Sean, and Janet Tintner. And then we later added Carrie Gottlieb. They all have chapters in the book. And we started the training program in 2006. But the, the real issue, which you can't imagine now, is what we were up against because when we first tried to introduce the idea of working with um, this kind of population in an analytic institute, we were faced with a number of challenges because we were challenging the preconceived notions of determining what kinds of patients were thought of as being suitable for analytic treatment. Mm -hmm. addiction, eating disorders, psychoanalysis, no way. And, you know, now when I look back on it, we were kind of crusaders or, or rebels and engaged in this battle of, you know, challenging the, what I could say, fooling around the archaic um, great beard analysts. And not that I'm anything against beards, but, you know, it was a different mindset when we were up against the majority of analytic thinking that really thought at the time that there was no trauma or severity um, with, of issues regarding eating disorders. We were actually turned down by the trauma service. Uh, and we heard things like, you know, eating disorder patients, treat an analytic institute, there's no trauma, tell them to just eat salad. Um, wow. And keep not. So, yeah, it was pretty intense. And the the field has come a long way. Um, but, you know, just part of the issue for analysts, um, certainly for classical and even some interpersonal, was so that the concept of thinking about specialization itself didn't fit into the traditional analytic model because analysis in the traditional sense would think of the treatment of the person as a whole, not the sum of many parts or different cell states or different body states. This is like pre-multiplicity. And what's really interesting now that continues to occur more and more is how patients have issues around food or substance, but it's only in the course of treatment that the analyst or the therapist comes to discover this down the road. So that's why... um, we see so much more um, in the sense of issues of disordered eating, you know, which is an eating disorder not defined, or just a dysregulated relationship with um, uh, food or a substance. And we discover it, you know, when, with our patients, when they're ready to reveal it. And I think this contributes to why more and more analysts now have opened up their minds to working with this population. I might also say that when we first established the um, the Eating Disorders Addictions Program, um, it was also revolutionary because the focus was not on... um, um, Yeah, what we did was we focused on the symptomatology, the manifest content, rather than just thinking about, like, symbolic interpretations, meaning. Mm -hmm. And so we used the principles of interpersonal... Psychanalysis and then integrate them with other treatment modalities. Also, something that was never really done. Like we could use some action-oriented techniques that would have some cognitive-behavioral pieces. We would think about setting up a team working alongside a nutritionist, internist, and mm-hmm. you know other uh, professionals. Um, so we really began focusing not only on the symptom but on the impact of, on such a focus on the therapeutic diet you know, thinking that one's relationship to food would mirror one's relationship to others and including the relationship between the patient and the analyst. Mm-hmm. So, just, you know, in anyone who's ever worked with an eating disorder a patient knows that it's all about the varied parts that are disowned or dissociated and there's no way you can avoid on some level getting pulled into the relational dynamics. You have to become a part of it. So you can't treat this group from the outside, and that's why interpersonal psychoanalysis seems like the perfect fit, because interpersonal psychoanalysis is always taking
1: this as foundational to treating anyone. Right, right. And and you write in some of the chapters in the book about um, how for eating disorder patients, there's a world of food uh, and then the world of people. And um, a lot of the interpersonal analysis is, is about the eating disorder patient bringing a person into that world. That's right. Right. That's right. That's right. And um, I was wondering, for our listeners' sake, if we could speak a bit about what uh, body states are. Um, So they're called body representations of self-states, and it's acknowledged that we all have a number of self-states and we transition between them, but the eating disorder patient's problem is that they have trouble living experience between the spaces. Um, There's difficulty in transitioning from one self-state to another, because the two are so strongly disassociated from one another um do i do I have that right?
0: Yes, you do actually um and but the way I would start by is by saying like in order to understand um a body state, you have to you have to first start to understand you know a self state and self mm-hmm. states are they're parts of one's identity when, you know, renowned analyst Philip Bromberg talks about the idea of self state and quote standing in the spaces, because that's really his term. Mm-hmm. He's referring to the capacity to feel like oneself while being many. Because you know, if you think about it, emotional health is it's not about integration or blending or collapsing parts. It, it's really about being able to have access to the many parts of our experience. So it's really about the idea of linkage. Right. So mm-hmm. you could think of a self-state as, as defined by you know what you can be curious about relative to the self-state that you're in. And then a body state has to do with embodiment, like the idea of how one lives in their body at a given moment relative to their self-experience. Um, and you know, embodiment has to do with the healthy ownership um, within one's, you know, physical core, and that's affected by a lot of things, you know, culture, transmission, genetics, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, it all works out, and when things are in tune, um, then bodily responses are in tune with emotions, all is good, but when they're not, you, you end up, you have a troubled body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as psychoanalysts, we increasingly, we see troubled, hurt, disturbed bodies coming into treatment, um, all the time with a lot of, they disown their feelings, they're dissociated, um, Desi Orbach, um, from London, who was really one of the early people in this field, um, you know, right. she talks about how everyone has a concern about doing right by their body, and it's disguised as a health concern, um, and she really believes that this, Reoccupation suggests from a longing, only for a body that's stable, mm-hmm. rather than a body experiencing disorganized sensations that just want to be managed. So, if you think about it, um, if the body's mind speaks its own language, mm. and it's an effective language, then the more you learn to listen to it effectively, without trying to think about it cognitively, the more fluent it becomes in letting you know what you need to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, the, so then the, you could say that the body as a self-state could be thought of as an adaptive use of normal dissociation, um, which can help account for why the language of the body depends on the mind of the body, the whole its language as a regulatable kind of experience. I, the way to think about it in kind of easy terms is like, we we often like do this thing where we bypass cognition and thinking when we enter into a state that we call like being in the zone or mm-hmm. on a roll or or in a groove. And we all know this feeling, especially athletes, um, who sometimes come to it organically. I mean I'm an as, as a tennis player for one. I certainly know what it's like to feel in the groove. Um but um, let me just to get that the last part of your question right? Um
1: the 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 part of the question
0: how can we um, pay attention to body states
1: right right how can we especially in a um, in a clinical in a context, context, context right? right so
0: we we have to be aware of the shifts in our own body feelings you know the patient and ours and ours as well and to get at this with patients i try to ask them things like um Do you find that when you remember something meaningful, emotionally painful, that you feel a sensation in your body? Um, and, And when they do, I ask them where and try to help them become more conscious of the bodily responses because I might ask them, you know, when their body is bothering them, do they try to ignore it as best as they can? Or are they able to reflect on maybe what their body can do? And that's more important than what it looks like. So, you know, overall, being aware of body feelings helps the patient become more aware of his or her body feelings and then can give us clues into their unconscious experience. But at the same time, it's also important that we, you know, in our role as therapists, be aware of our body feelings mm-hmm. because that gives us info into the communication, you know, uh, of the other and the relational transmissions that occur between us. So, for... You know, for us as therapists, if we're gender-conscious, we have to hold the recognition that we also model um, with subjectivity. So we have to be more than one that contains, tolerates, and survives the transverse. We have to stay subject in our own right, in our own body, which I think is equally as important for therapeutic change. Right, Go
1: right, ahead. to sort of maintain that. So
0: just basically pay attention to the bodies in the room, you know, mm-hmm. when when the patient mentions your body or physical awareness, how do we listen to that? How do we listen for the interpersonal meanings? You know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: how they go to it, when they go to it, why are they focusing on it? How is it being used in the room?
1: Sure. Listen with an ear for the body. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. that's great. I, I'd, I'd like to talk now, uh, about the origins of an eating disorder. Um, There appears to be an early trauma that leads to disassociation. Um, In her essay in your book, uh, Pat Ogden quotes Bromberg, referring to a disconfirmation um, in which one part of the child is acknowledged by the caregiver, while another part is treated as if it doesn't exist. Uh, The child then matures while keeping this disassociated idea of themselves. Um, Concomitant with this trauma is alexithymia, which prevents the child from symbolizing pain. Um, And as a consequence, the trauma and all the thoughts, fantasies, and desires associated with it become stuck in the body. Now, if that's right, and do correct me if I've misunderstood something, then my question is this, um, how does the eating disorder hold disassociated parts of self and relational history? And um, I'd also like to ask about your use of the term holding. Uh, You mentioned that quote, and I'm quoting you here, uh, our hope is to inspire patients to tell their story as well as to accept our willingness to hear their pain without judgment, to hold their disgust, their skeletal pieces, their fat, and their hurt. Um, Could you speak about what you mean by holding here? Uh, Do you mean holding close, holding in place? Um, Yeah. Okay, that's
0: a big question. Um, So, I guess first, um, I want to go back to just, saying that the, the idea of, you know, the origins of an eating disorder are, are multi-determined. I mm-hmm. mean, it, we have to look at it from like a biopsychosocial disorder and it's a confluence. So nature and nurture go hand in hand uh, in terms of etiology. But to address this one piece of this disorder, which can family involve, like how early trauma leads to dissociation um, or how the eating disorder can hold dissociated parts of the self in a relational history, I guess we could start by thinking about the idea of double lives, right, where a part of the self goes underground. You know, when something feels unbearable, It can't always be processed um, or when sometimes things are processed or acted on in the service of some other relational need, which is why then our first job would be to discover like all the patient's body cells or parts, and then we have to form a relationship with each part of the patient because each part holds its own truth, its own reality, and its own agenda, and they all should be taken seriously and accepted without judgment in order to help our patient, you know, ultimately feel less fragmented than more whole. Mm -hmm. So how to identify the different self and body states, like getting to know these parts of a person, is a really important part of our work, which is not always so easy because these parts are often unformulated. You know, the analyst um, Don Stern um, written a great book, Unformulated um, experience, experience and uh, a new one partisan book but he said in his earlier book um, in reference to understanding unformulated experience that sometimes it's about having to find what you don't know how to look for and mm-hmm. in that sense I think it's a perfect fit for um, patients with eating disorders because it is a place where alexithymia and unformulated experience um, are really dominant, and that's why their bodies speak in ways because their minds can't. I'll, I'll give you an example, maybe with um, bulimia. Um, bulimia can be thought of as like the breakthrough of desire which seeks and degree. Like patients feel like they just can't get enough because often what happens is someone with bulimia has difficulty identifying or accepting or owning Uh, her own needs and her needs of others. So there's this paradoxical nature of the bulimic self that makes it complicated for a therapist to to really approach and engage because bulimic behavior um, is a contradiction of sorts because it's both an assertion of self and a punishment for it. So one way to understand this is that they've learned as a child that their needs would really threaten the parents' needs of a narcissistic equilibrium. So what happens is, as a result, the child's needs have to be disavowed. And what you see then um, is this inherent difficulty that a patient with bulimia has with things like um, the expression of anger, right, for example. And that's why, you know, uh, one of the traits that um, is most commonly associated with someone uh, struggling with bulimia is this very pleasing um, self a false-pleasing self because that false-pleasing self has grown up in in compliance with the narcissistic needs of the parent. Mm. So then it, what happens is, if, you know, if you think about it, then the person with bulimia is a perfect fit in the sense that... Um, they, the bulimia itself, like in the moments of, of the bulimic act, they're really stealing a space that's covertly their own through the binging and purging, which, you know, in an ironic sense, are the only moments that are devoted to that person restoring her own sense of self. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's complicated, and um, when needs go underground, um, you know, something else, it's in the service of something else that that in that moment takes precedence. But you you also asked about the idea of holding, right? The term Mm. holding and the idea of holding. Um, So you think about holding, the idea of holding, like concretely in a bodily way where a person literally holds a piece of trauma in their body, but we also use the term symbolically as in like holding an uncomfortable feeling, or holding how someone might think of you thinking of them. Mm -hmm. So if you take the idea of holding an uncomfortable feeling, well, you start with the premise that in order to feel whole, with a W, right, one must connect with some of the painful feelings of, of one's past rather than, like, split them off and compartmentalize them. But these parts have an investment in staying separate and unknown to the other parts. Mm-hmm. So you know, when a patient has an eating disorder, the goal might be to develop the capacity to negotiate the transitions between these parts or the self states. So it's why we talk about things like putting in a delay so that, that one could think through the consequences of actions and then hold more things than the drive to escape the unbearable feeling, to avoid the discomfort or an of food. And in order to put in a delay, um, you know, something that's very important is that we try to help um, help patients keep this ongoing consciousness, like raise their level of mindfulness through the, the process of this transition so that they're not just um, in that moment overtaken by fear. Meaning that, you know, the last thing someone like in the throes of a binge and purge cycle wants to do is like stop. Think. Put a delay in. Call your therapist. Right? It's the last thing that they want to do because it's so impulse driven.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, and part of the problem is that what you often find with a person with an eating disorder is that they they actually feel too much, and and so the use of food or sometimes the lack thereof becomes a way. Of being um, in the world to not feel, and that not feeling feels preferable to them. So, if you so recovering the capacity to feel, and the ability to maintain the feelings without feeling out of control is key, right? Because you, you can't really feel whole without like an integration of all your feelings. But the, the paradox is that you know while we try to help our patients integrate the feelings. The only way to access them is through first the state of what you could say unintegration because when, you know, when a patient gives up a symptom, they initially feel really raw. And the problem is they they don't have the necessary skill to process their emotions in any manageable way. So then finding the space or as Bromberg states, standing in the spaces, right? allows us to know our emotions, and then allows us to take in other people's feelings as well. Um, when, when individuals are struggling with an eating disorder, they, they really tend to avoid their fears by either staying so aloof of their feelings um, and therefore staying symptomatic, right? And mm-hmm. then holding, again, onto their, what we call now adaptive attempt, a solution to something else. Um, so, you know, maybe it's like rather than trying to help a person just get rid of the bad feeling, we try to encourage their capacity to face the unfaithful and tolerate the discomfort, um, the un- the uncomfortableness. And that's what really helps a person feel stronger because all these things that are disturbing, the emotions and the parts, like, they don't have to be thrown out. They they can actually be, um, you know, really um, doorways into a, a greater sense of aliveness if they can be incorporated into their own experience. Um, but maybe learning how to be with these emotions in a new way, then we're challenging, you know, them to form new ways of thinking about how they think about themselves, um, right? It, yeah, so that's a, it's a long-winded way to try kind to of
1: explain it, but it's a very complicated system. Right. No, I, not long-winded at all. At least uh, to me, I think one thing that's particularly interesting is um, you know allowing the patient to be in his or her own space um, in a more integrated way. So as you said, the patient who struggles with bulimia, um, when she is binging or purging, um, that is her space, but it's um, a disassociated space because it is all impulse. And the last thing she wants to do is stop and think and call her therapist.
0: Right. And at that point she's, gotten so far away from even recognizing, like, either knowing what her needs are, so so first there's kind of naming, what is it that I'm feeling, what is it that I'm actually wanting, right? And then, can I actually have this space, and is it okay to have them here with the other person, or will it rupture the attachment? You know, Mm -hmm. since it's, it's a historical context has been, you know, I'm not allowed to have my needs, you know, it's like what, what, you know, whatever mom or dad
1: needs me to be, so to speak. Right, precisely, sort of living still under the narcissistic parents shadow. That's right. Wow.
2: That's right.
1: Well, thank you. Um, my, my next question is actually about the analyst-patient relationship. Um, you write in the introduction that Um, clinicians and researchers continue to grapple with the quest to bridge the gaps in defining a protocol for recovery, knowing that at its core trust in the reliability of the humanness of the other is a necessary ingredient to help one develop, regain, or have for the first time a stable body. Embodied experience must be cultivated and demonstrated in the patient therapist relationship as a felt experience and spirituality. So patients can learn to have a body that is lived in rather than experiencing it as an other to be managed. Um, so I'm interested in your idea of the patient and therapist relationship as a felt experience in its mutuality. Um, in your first paper here, you present a vignette in which you make a verbal contract with your bulimorexic patient. Um, she won't purge for a day and she'll keep a fruit and she'll keep a food journal. Um, she, in turn, attempts to cure you of your fear of dogs by sending you pictures of her own dog, who she'd like to bring into the room for future sessions. Um, Having established this, you proceed in your paper to examine how this relationship shed light on disowned parts of her. Um, This seemed a good example of the felt experience you mentioned in the introduction. So I was wondering what else the felt experience of analysis and its mutuality could look like. Um, What are the characteristics of the moment? another way to phrase this question may be, uh, because I know that's a long formed question. Um, you mentioned that there exist two worlds for the eating disorder patient, uh, the world of food and the world of people. How do you recognize the moment when your patient is sincerely bringing you into the world of food? Um, and how do you distinguish between your patient is associatively talking about her disorder and your patient actively experiencing, knowing it?
0: Okay. Um, I'm going to try to break this down a bit. So, let's see. Um, I guess I would start by saying, look, we, we try to bridge the world of food and people by talking the patient's language and entering into her world. Right? Mm-hmm. Bringing the symptom in the room by talking in detail and doing a, what Sullivan called a detailed inquiry about you know, what happens when it happens what the triggers are how it happens etc um sometimes we bridge the concrete world of food through um i have been playing around with this for quite some time using actual like food metaphors that mm-hmm. that reach affective um, states and also as uh, using them as communications within relationships. so tell something of like either the relational history and and what will be is at stake, you know, and how it plays out in the therapy relationship. Um, like things like how patients binge on us ideas will percolate, you know the idea of digestion, what can be held, what what can't be. Sometimes they will—they um, can't hold the feeling, so they'll purge in words. Um, you know, often you, I, patient will say things like, "I can't stomach that." You know, mm-hmm. and so it's always interesting um, when even like parts of the body uh, are brought in. Um, you know, because the world of food is such a closed system to them, so we really try to get in any way possible. Because the the patient who struggles with an eating disorder has really withdrawn from relatedness um, because, you know, getting needs and desires met uh, in any early attachment relationship was, you know, sometimes impossible or toxic or dangerous. So we really try to work to rebuild those links that have been severed. Um, in that example with my patient with the dog, you know. Um, I, was, I was with, I was trying to be kind of with her in the moment of vulnerability so she was not risking something alone. She was not the only one with her shame and I was kind of playing but, but really offering up my vulnerability in the mix, my fear of dogs, which is really true and has really changed over the course of time. Um, it's had to, you know,
1: um, yeah, Very um,
0: hook hook, there are probably more dogs that have come into my office now than I can count. Um, but, you know, I did it with her and one of the bridges was also like using playing mm-hmm. because playing is something which, um, is also sometimes very severely curtailed for, um, the constricted, you know, eating disorder, um, a person with an eating disorder. Um, And so, you know, there are many ways that... um, There are many different ways that I might try to bring in um, and make a bridge. I mean, sometimes, like, on a concrete bodily level, uh, I could give you an example of how, um, like, a a body part was referenced in a way. Mm. Oh, that allowed me to kind of talk about something very painful with a patient. I um, had a nineteen-year-old woman with anorexia. She was on medical leave from college. I was seeing her for a short period of time, but she kept identifying her size as the culprit for everything that troubled her. And one day, just out of the blue, as she walked in, she commented on how she felt my thighs look good in pants. And then we started to explore what were her feelings about my thighs and then her thighs and then discussion of the function of thighs and the shapes of thighs. And as we were going on and on about this, what we uncovered was she had a memory when she was nine years old and, was held over her grandfather's head to see above a crowd, and she remembers feeling his fingers creep around her thighs into her genital region. She remembers feeling physically unable to move and emotionally frozen, and she remembers, you know, as he thrust his fingers into her, she said, you've never spoken these words out loud. Um, Wow. It was a really poignant moment between us because it, it... demonstrated so um, viscerally how bodies can really concretize and hold the internal and the historical experience. Um, You know, when being faced with the horror of her experience, well, you, you find yourself and we as Beth find ourselves like first wanting to offer reassurance and comfort rather than just holding their distress and hearing their pain. Which is really what I did with her, and that helped allow those body parts to come into the room. Mm. Well, you know, when this—excuse um, me, uh, sorry—when this patient um, compared my, you know, in quote, my idealized in her my thighs to her thighs, it was a way that she could bring in her. I would say in quotes, her damaged or defective thighs in her mind and to begin to address her pain about this frightened um, and hated body part. It filled her with shame, anger, and disgust. And I think without our directly addressing her thighs, um, you know, her pain couldn't begin to lessen. So this is just an example um, in which, you know, her disowned body experience, which she could not connect to her size, but by using um, my thighs, it became safer, mm-hmm. and um, you know she could talk about it. That's on a concrete level, but right. You also, I guess, to mention, I guess, the idea of holding it both on the symbolic level, um, because. Patients with eating disorders, you know, they have no way to process, like, the things they feel, their affects through self-reflection or mentalization. And so if they can't use um, symbolic or metaphoric thought, then the body has to hold things. So, um, you know, and that's why, like, they can feel so enslaved by their inability to contain desire as anything that's regulatable. So they have to get rid of it. Um, and so there, it's very difficult for them to kind of just hold feeling states um, as well.
1: Right, right. The, the um, unthought thought gets stuck in the body. That's right.
0: <laughs> that's, that, that's right. right. That's right.
1: And um, I, I, I love your example um, as well because I feel it epitomizes what interrelational analysis can bring to the treatment of eating disordered patients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's, you know, because we I mean, really what we're talking about is the idea of, you know, being able to sit with one's feelings, like hold an idea in mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the difficulty. Right. That really face.
2: Right.
1: I, that, um, that reminds me of another consideration I had while reading uh, the book, um, namely, sort of wrestling with the idea of participant-observer. Um, you know, it's clear that the eating-disordered patient has trouble being a participant-observer in her own life. Um, and my question for you was, you know, do you find that the eating-disordered patient is more participant than observer? Is she acting without thinking, or? is the eating disordered patient more observer than participant? Is she knowing about what she does without changing how she acts? Um, perhaps both. I don't know. It's, it's you know sort of hard to parse this into neat categories.
0: You really read this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's an interesting question, right. On many levels. Cause if you think about the idea of knowing, um,
2: it, it,
0: it's, It's really that I think it's a process of sort of knowing, right? When Mm -hmm. someone can actually know what they know, what they know they don't want to know, and also in the sense of, like, how these patients know things, in a way, with their bodies. Um, You know, turning to food almost like a drug of sorts that, that really is meant to help regulate the overwhelming mental our emotional distress, and then they have to get rid of what their minds can't contain or know um, because they can only sort of know it. So they might know they're in it, but they don't feel like they can do anything about it. Um, Yeah, we could say, I guess, as human beings, I think we're always all trying, hopefully, to balance being in our felt experience with also being able to observe and reflect on them. But patients with, with uh, eating disorders tend to fall down on one side or the other. And you could see the impulsive reactive behavioral acts that they, you know, step into a binge or a binge and perch cycle of being only like a participant in that moment or when they're caught in the mercy of their feelings rather than being able to digest and reflect on them. they They feel like, you know, they're stuck uh, like hamsters on a wheel, falling in the same old, same old pattern. Um, and you could you could actually say they're acting without thinking. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, they, what they tell you is that they feel like they're, they're held hostage by the intruders in their heads, they're consumed by secrets, they'll speak of sudden surges of hunger or... These insistent food thoughts uh, rituals silent fears, but what's interesting is that you know even though they um they they think into this you know pattern the inevitable pattern of their behavior they awake each morning and they they're determined to end this tortured relationship. You know, they can say things like, i got to be good, I'm only going to eat vegetables, I'm only going to resist temptations, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what happens is that they make these promises to themselves, but when they, these promises collide with the emotions that overwhelm them, then the promise just completely disintegrates. And then in that fraction of a second, that something just happens, right? And they... Right. Resolve resolved, disappears, and it's like they lose their minds, right? They can't recall why they should do anything but eat foods that maybe just a few minutes before they had no thought or hunger for. And so, you know, they repeatedly turn to food for purposes other than feeding and nutrition and all that, and then their bodies seek ways to eliminate what they've taken in, and then they feel despair in the process. So, you know, when you ask, is the person with they to know about what she does without changing how she acts or perhaps both I mean I think at some point she knows that she's choosing to numb right because there's so much despair that's brought about by the cycle Um, I think it's cloaked in the fear of eating or being quote fat, or craving foods that are dangerous or, or bad or on the bad food list or having others see them or not seeing them as they are And these states can be used to numb or anesthetize experience or deaden feelings or to observe themselves only in relation to others, especially around weight and eating behaviors and food. Um, You know, a patient within eating can be thinking, if she's eating that, I will eat less or more, as the case would be, rather than trying to read the internal or subjective cues. Um, And, you know, it's played out with food of course, but also with feelings and wants and desires. So the patients are either at the mercy of the self experience of objectifying and scrutinizing themselves and others and they have no access to the internal
2: cues. Right.
0: So but both. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's um it's it's a question that it's very rewarding to discuss but it's it's always still there and um god i i think
0: yeah because you know there's one of the just to be clear about like there's so many um like the concept of knowing itself is Mm -hmm. so complicated right you know how do we what do we know not know and then that whole it's, it's. that's why I feel like so much of it is really in sort of knowing, because it's never about just the cognitive knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was the case, you just, you know, every patient knows, like sticking a fork down her throat, ripping out her esophagus, like, is that really a good thing?
2: Right. That's
0: why, like, you can't talk rationally. It's not about that kind of knowing.
1: Right. Especially because with the eating disordered patient, there's been an impediment to symbolization.
0: Right. That's right. That's right. right.
1: right. Now, Now, hmm. I don't know. I, I, I had another question, but I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to, to skip ahead um, to something just because um, I feel like it relates to what we were just speaking about. Um, to move ahead a little bit to your second essay, um, My Body is a Cage, um, you opened by writing that, quote, eating disorders are maladaptive attempts to survive the unbearable, both psychologically and psychophysiologically. Um, What you're referring to here is different than simple repression. Um, And, you know, we've been talking so much about interrelational analysis and, you know, the ways in which it is different um, than, you know, other sorts. So I was wondering if you would mind describing for our listeners what for you distinguishes eating disorders from repression in general.
0: have to re- reframe this question to make it more sense um, for me in terms of how I think about this work because I don't really use the word repression. So I, I prefer to think about things in terms of dissociation and I'd rather talk about like the role of dissociation because, you know, repression is not simple. I mean, there are people... I've written many, many books and many scholarly articles on the difference between dissociation and repression. I think mean, that's a whole different discussion. Um, right. And I think one that takes it in a different direction than uh, a lot of the things that this book is about and certainly um, where how I'm thinking about it. So mm-hmm. I would rather kind of look at and say that, like, m- much of um, the most fruitful contemporary psychoanalytic work on eating disorders has involved understanding eating disorders as dissociative processes. Right. So, um, if we start from if we start from that premise, then we could say that you know there's been affective states that have not historically been tolerable or manageable, and and that has uh, threatened, needed connections to early attachment figures. And so what cannot be um, represented and tolerated cognitively and effectively is often then dissociated. So it's literally delinked from its meaning um, and it's held as a concrete yet, you know, unsymbolized form of, of pain. And for um, an eating disorder patient, I think... For many reasons, these undigested experiences become compartmentalized into feelings about the body, and they're split off from the self. The, 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 they're split off from the self the patient can't stand to be. And they're controlled and then acted out through the symptoms. At the same time, um, the symptoms-induced dissociation, you know, often allowing like a person to escape the emotional pain they would otherwise face—the loss, or the shame, or the terror. Um, that's the way I would think about it.
2: Right. Right. So,
0: so you know, re- repression um, really comes from it, it. It puts it back into um, a more. Um, kind of top-down model. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I, you know, I, I think that these parts exist simultaneously, but the connections between them aren't there as opposed to not being able to find it right. or not being able to, you know, have access to it in a different way.
1: Right. It's a different set of questions completely. When you're talking about um, dissociation, as opposed to 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 repression, it sounds. Yeah, I mean that
0: yeah, and I mean that's a big uh, it's been a big debate, it's a big, big debate in the field. There are conferences just on that topic <laughs> Well,
1: that's that's it's it's a shame we don't have more time to to um, go into uh, those those debates. Um, as as it stands, we. Regrettably, I only have a few minutes left. So I think um, for my final question for you, you know, um, you spoke earlier in the interview about how there are cultural transmissions and um, there are discussions in the book about how body image is transmitted from the mother to the daughter. Um, As you say, in the body group penned essay, The Acquisition of a Body, uh, the mother's embodiment of the psychological shape and possibilities of gender is the child's initial access to the world from her culturally imbued body. The mother consciously and unconsciously materially and imaginatively engages with her daughter's developing body. Um, just as she engages with her daughter's developing emotional life. Um, in the same essay, one will find that how she, the mother uh, relates at a psychological and physical level with her daughter is her idiomatic honing of the varied context that have shaped her. Um, and while I was reading this, the title of an old Eric Fromm book came to mind, uh, The Sane Society. Uh, the theme of that book being, of course, that it's to be expected that people feel feel ill when they're living in an ill society. So I suppose I, my question for you is, um, what kind of wellness can women find living in an unwell culture where the contradictory expectations of womanhood are played out in the body? Um, and you know, how can one really respond to the fact that a patient cannot affect change in a culture in the same way that she may affect actual change in her personal relationships.
0: Yeah, boy. You know, it's a a tough world that we live in. Um, You know, we we live in this society where young girls believe that, the know, bodies define who they are. And, you know, even though I think the cultural influence is only one piece of the puzzle, but nonetheless, you know, a very important one, the, the message and the cultural imperatives they're powerful, they're damaging, you know, and, and they definitely have an impact um, on young girls in terms of them, you know, turning to, you know, these be- even sort of behaviors in an attempt to manipulate the body to fit into this unrealistic standard of beauty and, and they become trapped in this negative cycle of body hatred, um, you know, from day one, we're living in a cultural body. Um, we could say the media, you know, certainly projects and, and brands, um, Young women and young men, but, and the mother-daughter intergenerational transmission is also so important because that often, that extends the feeding of cultural messages. Um, you know, the, the body group, which I'm, uh, really happy to be part of that was, um, led, spearheaded by C.C. Orbach and women, some women from the Women's Therapy Center, the whole Point of um, putting together and creating um, an instrument was to really try to focus on more of this intergenerational transmission and understand the ways in which, um, like bringing, like how culture and the transmission of embodiment to really um, come, can come into the room and people we can talk about it because you know what what we find clinically so often is that there's this merger that um, grows out of a mother's anxiety about what it means to live in a female body and, and that gets passed on to her child and then mm-hmm. the message that's conveyed is to seek feelings of empowerment and self-definition through using her body um, by using by to control and identify with these cultural ideas of, of women as commodities and what happens is when vulnerabilities are not recognized or they're not valued or one's sense of agency is is not supported because, you know, the old expression, you know, mother knows best isn't really true. (laughs)
2: Mm
0: -hmm. It doesn't work. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, so when you ask, like, what kind of wellness can women find, you know, living in an unwell culture, um, there's so many contradictions and they're played out in the body. You know, the message is be Actually, objectify and claim agency at the same time. It's it's a very um, interesting and complex issue, and I think we're trying to work on changing the cultural message. But one thing that might be I could think about that's useful from an analytic perspective is is a focus maybe on individual difference. Because, you know, we know that even though things are as they are culturally, some women manage to integrate a sense of agency and pass this along to their daughters, and others don't. Some women feel good in their body, and others don't. And the question is why and what happens developmentally in the processing and transmission of cultural messages through family relationships and, and history. Um, you know, I... I don't know. I I mean, I think that this is a question that um, we're going to really continue to be looking at for quite some time.
1: Yeah, but as we do continue looking at it, I would count us lucky to have your thoughts on them. Um, Thank you so much for your answer and uh, your time today, Gene. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure of speaking with you as well. I appreciate your interest very much in this topic.
1: We would be happy to have you back anytime as you continue doing your work. Um, but for now, this is Michael Mangello signing off on Nubix in Psychoanalysis. Uh, till next time.